Hi, my name is Jonathan Weatherby, and this is the first installment of Lesbian Rightsbin, where we aim to give a full and thoughtful understanding of today's news. I love debate. I'll debate anything. I'll debate board game rules. By the way, you cannot sell all of your properties in Monopoly for $1 right before you're about to enter bankruptcy. Uh, I met my spouse in a debate society in undergrad. Go dogs. I went to law school in part because I love debate. Go heels. And debate is a big reason for having started Left Spin, Right Spin in the first place. At Left Spin, Right Spin, we enumerate the objective news of the day, and then we analyze that news with the left and the right-leaning political lenses. The first area of concern for a project like this one is false equivalence. I'm very aware of the concept, and I'm also a fan of the Enlightened Centrism subreddit, so those things are definitely on my radar as we build out Left Spin, Right Spin. Today's episode is about high crimes and misdemeanors, and heads up, we're only talking about that phrase today. So we won't actually be getting into the facts of the ongoing proceedings against Donald Trump, or even impeachment more broadly. 2020 is going to be an eventful year. We have a presidential election, not to mention the primary processes, in addition to all the things that could happen and already have happened. So without further ado... Votes are in and we are headed to a trial on the removal of Donald Trump from the office of the presidency. This week, each side will be gearing up for that trial, but more on that next time on Left Spin, Right Spin. By way of introduction to our Constitution, you should know that it's pretty short. Excluding the United Kingdom, it's the seventh shortest constitution of OED nations, and it is the oldest. So theoretically, we're further away from the original meaning of the Constitution. In interpreting the Constitution, you take modes of constitutional interpretation. Just like there are modes of transportation through which you can arrive to your destination, there are also modes of constitutional interpretation that help you understand what the Constitution is saying. There are six to eight modes of interpretation depending on who you ask. Those modes are the text, the constitutional structure, original intent, historical practice, practical consequences, morality, past precedent, and national identity. Some constitutional inquiries don't require much interpretation other than reading the text. For example, the president has to be at least 35 years old. It's pretty straightforward. You don't have to do any kind of extra study to know what that means. Some inquiries, like those relating to the phrase due process, require a great deal of historical and legal research. Sometimes looking into the consequences of a certain ruling will highlight how one interpretation was clearly not intended, even if the text suggests that it is the correct interpretation. Modes of constitutional interpretation are an imperfect framework, and there's a lot of overlap, but it's helpful in structuring an analysis into the Constitution. And we'll touch on a few of these modes throughout this Lesbian Rightsman. Different legal minds index on some of these modes more heavily than others. And unlike modes of transportation, using one mode over another uh, might get you to a different outcome as to what the correct reading of the Constitution is. But also, constitutional interpretation isn't exactly a Republican versus Democrat thing. It's not easily put on a left-right spectrum because there are so many modes of constitutional interpretation to take. And at the end of this, you should ask yourself which modes of constitutional interpretation you find most compelling. Which gets us back to high crimes and misdemeanors, which one can only hope will be a movie wherein President Keenan and Vice President Kell are impeached for feeding a federal guard's horse a weed-infused good burger and are defended in a My Cousin Vinny impeachment trial in the Senate. One can only hope. 
But when I first heard about high crimes and misdemeanors, I wasn't exactly sure what this high word meant. Uh, but I went to law school and I knew that a crime is an offense against the state that is tried by a government prosecutor and can be punishable up to imprisonment and in some places death. And a misdemeanor is a subcategory of a relatively less harmful crime. But the articles of impeachment do not allege a specific crime, as in there's no reference to the U.S. Code at any point. And this made some people feel uncomfortable. There wasn't one witness that said a crime or impeachable offense was committed. Madam Speaker, I remind my colleagues, no crime, no impeachable offense. That's a pretty good defense, if you ask me. Alleged abuse of power, the first article, is not a high crime and misdemeanor. In fact, it's not even a crime. And since there is no concise legal definition of abuse of power, the majority party in the House can designate nearly any disagreement with the president from now on an impeachable offense. And although in 1998 the Republican-controlled House Judiciary Committee report on impeachment specifically says that there need not be a specific crime or misdemeanor for there to be an impeachment, the idea that finding an indictable, incitable crime is necessary for impeachment lives on in House debate and political commentary. I've even found a Harvard Law Review article by Professor Nicholas Bowie that argues that an indictable crime and the status of criminality and the impeachment offense is a prerequisite to impeaching a president on high crimes and misdemeanors. And there are other clauses in the Constitution that point to high crimes and misdemeanors actually requiring a specific crime. For example, in the clause wherein we find the phrase high crimes and misdemeanors, it follows after treason, bribery, and other high crimes and misdemeanors. So, one thing that you can infer is that treason and bribery are both crimes. Therefore, when we say other crimes, we're talking about other actual crimes and other actual misdemeanors. Elsewhere in the Constitution, when it's talking about actual criminal trials, it says this, The trial of all crimes except in cases of impeachment, shall be by jury, and such trial shall be held in the state where blah, 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 blah. Kind of weird to say except in cases of impeachment when talking about crimes if impeachment isn't a crime in the first place. The lesson would bring up the fact that impeachment only results in the removal from office and can go no further than that. One essential element of a crime is the potential for a penalty against your person, where you could go to jail or be put to death. Also, the Constitution specifically states that the person removed will still be liable for their crimes in a court of law. All of this evidence distances impeachment from our criminal justice systems and their relevant laws. In the 1780s in England, there was a prominent impeachment trial for Warren Hastings, who was a colonial governor in the Bengal region of the English Empire. His articles of impeachment were titled High Crimes and Misdemeanor, so everything that fell under it was a high crime or a misdemeanor, per their definition. Included in those articles of impeachment were very non-criminal offenses, such as disregard for instructions, the mismanagement of the region, high-handed or deceitful dealings, and also misconduct of local wars. Hastings' impeachment trial is significant because it was the most prominent impeachment trial that the founders would have been aware of. And it's even referenced when they're at the Constitutional Convention in 1787, where the Constitution was written. It's safe to say that their understanding of high crimes and misdemeanors is, in part, derived from that trial. But if we look elsewhere to legal influencers of the 18th century, the story gets a little murky. Sir William Blackstone was an English lawyer and judge who wrote Commentaries on English Law, which would have been a textbook that many of the lawyer founders would have had. He argues that, quote, an impeachment is a prosecution of an already known and established law, and went on to list all the English statutes that fed into impeachment proceedings in Britain. 
Richard Woodison was another English jurist in this 18th century and argued that misdeeds such as abuse of high offices of trust, acting grossly contrary to the duty of the office, misleading higher-ups, subverting the fundamental laws, and introducing arbitrary power all have properly occasioned impeachments. The right spin might point out that these past presidents that were born out of English law are not quite relevant for a few reasons. So first, in our Constitution, we are not allowed, and the Constitution prohibits, bills of attainder and ex post facto laws. Ex post facto laws are laws that are written retroactively, so punishing people for something they did in the past that wasn't actually a law when they did it. And our founders really didn't like that concept. Nor did the founders like these things called bills of attainder, which were basically government bills that were passed to punish people very specifically for offenses that they had done without due process and without trial by a jury and without a trial at all. The founders made sure not to include any of these and embodied in each of these prohibitions is the idea that we should not be punishing anybody in this country for things that aren't already on the books. It's a very simple concept that would have resonated with the founders and obviously did the right spin on this would argue that if high crimes and misdemeanors don't actually require a crime or a misdemeanor, then the whole clause would be contradictory to the spirit of some aspects of the Constitution. And the Reisman would argue that you could see this sentiment elsewhere. In the Constitutional Convention of 1787, they offered the word maladministration instead of what they ultimately landed on, high crimes and misdemeanors. They rejected the word maladministration as being way too broad and saying that, quote, it would be the equivalent to a tenure during pleasure of the Senate, which is to say that the president would only hold office so long as he made the Senate happy. And the rightspin would argue that narrowing this phrase from maladministration to high crimes and misdemeanors embodied the idea that we don't want to incriminate anybody for things that they don't know they could be incriminated for, which is to say that they are written crimes or misdemeanors. And after the Federal Convention, when the states were in the process of ratifying the Constitution, Alexander Hamilton would write in Federalist Number 65 that the Senate should don a judicial character as it sat for trial of impeachments. What the rightspin would argue is that this judicial character is to be judicious of a law. It is to distinguish itself from its legislative character that it usually dons when it's writing laws. Per the rightspin's interpretation of Federalist Number 65, the Senate shouldn't be writing any laws at the time that they're voting whether a president is guilty or not guilty of high crimes and misdemeanors. They should be interpreting whether they are in violation of those high crimes and misdemeanors, which, how can you interpret something if there isn't already a law or a misdemeanor on the books that you can interpret? So the Lesman has some rebuttals here. For starters, James Madison, who was the most vocal critic of the word maladministration that he said was so vague and would have given the Senate uh, so much power over the president, he would later argue that the word maladministration was included in high crimes and misdemeanors, just to make things really confusing. Also, in those debates in 1787, uh, they excluded the words high misdemeanors because they thought it would be too technical and that it would be too limiting. If they didn't want for this clause to be so limiting and technical, why would they choose something that ended up being very literal and technical and limiting, like requiring an actual crime or an actual misdemeanor? And also, if we go back to Federalist Paper number 65, Alexander Hamilton argues that these impeachable offenses proceed from misconduct of public men, or in other words, from the abuse or violation of some public trust. 
This is full of abstract language that comports with the understanding of high crimes and misdemeanors as a term of art that includes such non-criminal offenses as an abuse of office. After the Constitution was written at the 1787 Constitutional Convention, it went to the states for further debate on ratification of the Constitution. These debates help us further understand what an impeachable offense looked like when the Constitution was ratified. For example, in North Carolina, James Ardell said that if the president committed a misdemeanor in office, that he is removable via impeachment, whereas if he commits a crime, he'll be punishable by the laws of the country. In Virginia, our boy James Madison said that if the president assembled just a few senators to ram through an awful treaty, that he would be impeached and removed from office. These debates show us that, one, the word misdemeanor had a usage that was equivalent to how we would use misconduct today, Two, that impeachment was viewed as being a separate beast altogether from criminal trials. And three, in the instance of James Madison, that the president did not need to violate an actual crime. And the listmen would bring up some historical examples. Their argument is a minimal one, so if they find examples of a public official who has been impeached, convicted, and removed from office for something less than a crime or an actual misdemeanor, then I guess they win. Uh, and they have those arguments. For example, Judge John Pickering was impeached and removed in 1804, and he was removed for mental deterioration, which is not a crime. In the 1930s, Judge Halstead Ritter was impeached, convicted, and removed from his federal judicial appointment. This case was really interesting because there were seven articles of impeachment. Only two of them alleged a specific crime. Six of those articles of impeachment were acquitted, so the Senate just didn't even think that those were impeachable offenses or that he could be convicted on them. But the seventh was the one that he was convicted and removed on, and it had nothing to do with a specific crime and was not one of the ones that cited a specific crime. But the right spin might argue that in this day and age, we have so many laws on the books, and those laws are so broadly applicable that if we can't find an actual crime to impeach the president for, then maybe it's not worth going after. Maybe the original intent of the founders doesn't really matter anymore, because we live in a totally different planet from when we did when they were writing the Constitution. But the leftsmen would rebut back with some hypotheticals that illustrate that the laws on our books are actually quite limited. For example, what if the president decides to live full-time in Vancouver and decides to run the country via email and Microsoft Teams, which is an app that I really like. Would that be okay? Would that be an impeachable? It's certainly not a crime or a misdemeanor. And what if the president decided to pardon every single indicted criminal who shared his or her last name regardless of the severity of their crime? What if the president of the United States tweets out that he or she will reduce the number of Roman Catholic judges he or she appoints to federal judgeships? And then we indeed see a drop-off of appointments to judgeships of Roman Catholic judges. I invite you to think through these hypotheticals yourself based on what you imagine a nightmare executive to look like. All you have to do is find a presidential power and turn the abuse dial up to 11. It gets pretty scary pretty quickly. And we don't write laws in this country to ferret out any possible abuse of the president. And further, some of the laws that we might pass to prevent such abuses might be unconstitutional in and of themselves. Which brings me to this scene at Airbud. checking your rule book but you won't find anything in there that says a dog can't play he's right ain't no rules said the dog can't play basketball
Yes, of course, there's no rules that say a dog can't play basketball, but there actually are when you think about it. I mean, isn't it implied that it's a human boys basketball league? Don't the laws of common sense dictate that there can't be animals on the court? And I mean, aren't there no rules also that you can't have an elephant on your team that just sits next to your opponent's basket and just drains buckets with its five-foot-long trunk? So looking back, at these arguments, there's actually an overwhelming consensus among legal scholars, left and right, and across Republican and Democratic congresses. So if high crimes and misdemeanors doesn't require an actual crime or misdemeanor, what in the world is it? Based off of the research that I talked about today, I would say that it is the particularly egregious abuse of a power that is granted to an office holder, a physical or mental incapacity to continue in that office, or some misconduct that isn't a direct abuse of the office, but does indicate an unfitness for that office. And one thing we didn't dive into today was the substantiality of the offense. Although Gerald Ford famously said that high crimes and misdemeanors is whatever a majority of the House and a supermajority of the Senate think it is, legal consensus is that Chester Arthur was rightfully not considered for impeachment and removal because of his friendly mutton chops, although he most certainly should have been. The text and the structure of the Constitution for high crimes and misdemeanors can be complicated. In interpreting the Constitution, you need to be comfortable with ambiguity and contradiction. Hopefully looking at some of the other modes of interpretation like original intent and past precedent were helpful for better understanding the phrase. I certainly left arguments on the table. If I omitted any that you don't think I should have or you disliked something, please leave a comment. If you like this, feel free to comment or subscribe. This debate was a great one for me to start off on. I had this neat idea about giving the objective facts and then talking about the opposing sides of an argument, but the objective, unedited facts of this debate are so long and so ancient. There's no way to talk about high crimes and misdemeanors or anything with a history so deep and rich without either one, writing a 300-page treatise, or two, allowing for the inevitable bias to shape the publication. At Lisbon, Wrightsman will always aim to give the unperturbed facts, but that's not always going to be so easy. Today we looked at the amorphous tree that is high crimes and misdemeanors. Next time on Lisbon, Wrightsman will pull back and examine the forest that is impeachment itself. I want to thank a lot of people. First and foremost, my spouse, Evie Wilson. She is super helpful in so many ways. Starge, the amazing American primary documents in history. That was fantastic. Uh, so many resources. Uh, Frank Bowman's book, High Crimes and Misdemeanors. Uh, Raul Berger's book, Impeachment. And as I've already mentioned, Nicholas Bowie's uh, article on uh, whether high crimes and misdemeanors indeed requires a crime or a misdemeanor. Just wrapped up uh, editing the first left spin, right spin, and that was a ton of fun. Huge learning curve and a lot of room to grow, um, but I can't wait to keep making these throughout the year, and I hope you'll stay posted.